Getting sober requires a lot more than mind over matter, a lot more than willpower. It's about leveraging the support around you. People in recovery typically need a mix of medical help, emotional support, and changes in lifestyle to manage their addiction, not just mental determination. As both a therapist and someone embracing the recovery lifestyle, there's one tool I always recommend to people needing extra accountability, Soberlink. Soberlink is a high-tech breath analyzer system designed to help you get and stay sober. And here's why I love it. You'll test the same day every day, eliminating testing anxiety. Friends and family receive instant test results, helping you rebuild trust and preventing relapse. Accountability is a part of that, and it's something to really be embraced. Devices have built-in facial recognition, so your support circle knows you're testing, and tamper-resistant sensors flag any attempts at trying to beat the system, so your sobriety is never questioned. So let 2024 be your best year yet. Visit Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M to sign up and receive $50 off your device. That's Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M. And let accountability be your guide. All right, everyone. Welcome to episode 86 of the Addicted Mind podcast. My name is Dwayne Osterland, and I'm your host. I'm also the founder of Novus Mindful Life Institute, Family Counseling and Recovery Center in Long Beach, California. If you or anyone you know is struggling with any of life's challenges, reach out to us. You can find more information about us at theaddictedmind.com forward slash help. Once again, I want to hear your message of hope. If you'd like to share your message of hope, just go to the website, theaddictedmind.com, click on the tab on the side and share a 90 second audio clip about your message of hope. I think it's so important when people are out there struggling that they hear that things do get better, even if it's difficult in the beginning, that recovery is possible and that change is something that anyone can achieve. So if you'd like to share that message, you can do so. Just go to the website, record your audio, and I'm hoping to feature some of these audio clips on the Addicted Mind podcast so people can hear voices out there of people who are in recovery, getting better, and healing. So if that fits for you, please go and do that. Also, think about joining our Facebook group. Just go to Facebook and type in the Addicted Mind podcast, click join, and you can continue the conversation there as well. Also, if you're really enjoying the Addicted Mind podcast, please rate and review us in iTunes or share the podcast with a friend or someone you think could benefit from listening to the Addicted Mind. So our guest today is David Fawcett, and he is going to talk about chemsex, what that is, and how people recover when they fuse both a drug addiction and a sex addiction together. So it was a great conversation. I just really appreciate him coming on and sharing his wisdom and really just bringing a lot of hope to an issue that impacts a lot of people. And so it was a great conversation. Enjoyed it. And let's go ahead and start it. All right, everybody. Welcome to the Addicted Mind podcast. My guest today is David Fawcett, and he is going to talk about chemsex addiction and what that means and what that's all about. David, do you want to introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about you? 
Yes, thanks so much. My name is David Fawcett. I'm a licensed clinical social worker and a sexologist, a sex therapist. And I've worked in the addictions field for about 30 years. The last 20 years or so of that was working with a lot of men who have sex with men who use methamphetamine and other drugs and high-risk sex. And that developed the sole interest of mine in what is now called chemsex. But we can talk more about what that means. But that's been my work for the last 20 years or so. How did you start to discover this as an issue? And how did this kind of come about for you? And why is this a passion for you? Yeah, thanks. I'm in recovery myself, although not from methamphetamine, been for a long time. And I had a, a real passion in working with a lot of gay men who were experiencing a lot of shame and internalized stigma and co-occurring HIV, which goes with a lot of high-risk sex and drug use. And that was my clientele, basically, for 20-some years. And as a sex therapist, people were coming to me for sexual problems. And with a little history, we discovered that the sex problems were caused by methamphetamine, a lot of the other drug use. So oftentimes, rather than come seeking help for the drugs, they came for the sex problems. But that led right into this fusion that I was discovering between sexual behavior and drug use and the devastation it caused for these individuals. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about what that looks like when we say chemsex and fusion and what does that mean? Right. So what I've really discovered is that, you know, we have addiction to substances, we have addiction to behaviors like sex, and each of those are treated slightly differently. But really, this is a third thing, in my opinion, where people simultaneously using drugs and almost always an amphetamine is in the mix there. And combining with sex, there's actually a fusion or a bonding of those that occurs in the brain. Neurologically, those pathways become connected. And so that behavior state really is one set of behaviors. And so if we take the traditional approach of getting somebody clean from their drug problems and hope the sex problems take care of themselves, they don't. Because the two are so fused, if someone gets clean, oftentimes their sexual life goes with it. And that's the problem people were coming to me for. They were a year clean, 18 months clean, and had virtually no sexual desire. Because that had been so fused with their drug use, when they gave up the drugs, their sex went with it. Right. And so it's, it's a whole thing. So tell me a little bit when you say fused, can you give me an example of how that might look like in a person who's struggling with this, what that would look like? Sure. And so this happens because of dopamine, which is one of the neurotransmitters that's essential here that really acts. When we teach our dog how to do a trick, if the dog sits and I have a treat, it's dopamine that bonds those two things together. And so if someone's acting out sexually and using drugs, those two things get bonded. The way it looks is that if I'm in that state where they become paired or fused, if I see a sexy person on the street, I may get a tremendous craving to get high. Or if I see uh, a syringe, if I've been an injection drug user, I may get a sexual urge at the same time. The two go hand in hand. And so one really triggers the other. And it's this whole bundle of cues and triggers that really make it complicated for someone. And then, as I said, in recovery, because if we don't treat that really from a sex therapy perspective, people's sex lives have been so kind of reset by that super stimulation of sex and drugs that nothing normal is appealing anymore. It's a very similar process we see with sex and porn addiction, where that super stimulation occurs and the brain kind of has to reboot in recovery. Right. How does this get introduced into a person's life? I mean, they're having sex and then they use drugs together and then that becomes a combo or where do we see this? And I guess I'm asking, how does it manifest itself? How does it grow or how does it become this fused together? Right. I think certainly among men who have sex with men, there's this whole kind of fusion of 
the apps, you know, the, the hookup apps combined with the right. drug use. And, and you can go in those and discover basically with coding, like party and play, people that are looking not only to connect with drugs, but to have sex as well. And so oftentimes it's kind of introduced organically like that. And it's not a problem just among gay men. In the bisexual world, we think of, you know, I've had in treatment, we've had heterosexual guys who use cocaine and get to see prostitutes, you know, and then they get that same rush of the whole endeavor. So people discover it quite quickly. The other way I've seen it introduced is through tolerance, which we see in addiction in general, but where people kind of what was doing it for them yesterday isn't quite as exciting anymore. So they have to kind of up the ante a little bit. And we see this escalation of more high-risk sex or maybe more taboo things just to get that stimulation going. Right. So... I guess vanilla sex gets boring or something. And then they add this element to it. And then that creates a heightened sense of pleasure, intensity. They start chasing that, that combo. That's exactly right. And that becomes kind of the new baseline. And anything less than that is not only kind of boring or not interesting, but almost even depressing. And so people's whole lives, what used to give them pleasure, including their their human partners don't do that anymore. Even the food, there's a state we call anhedonia where people are just, everything's kind of gray. They can't experience pleasure. And so that's quite common for a while. So what kind of happens in the brain as you start to fuse these things together? What's going on? Because you're talking about anhedonia. And can you define, first for any listeners who don't know what that is, what is anhedonia? And then let's talk about how the brain right. brings this all together. So anhedonia is this state where people just can't experience any pleasure. Life is kind of gray. Everything's depressing or sad. And just there's nothing happy or perky or bright. And people, and that's not just an emotional state. That's often due, and this, where we see this in addictions, is the brain actually shedding receptors. And without getting into the weeds too much, dopamine is the neurotransmitter here that makes us feel good. It happens with cocaine, with methamphetamine, other stimulants, it releases a lot of dopamine. Sex, orgasm gives us dopamine and, and makes us feel good. What happens with addiction, and particularly with chemsex, in a very profound way, the, there's this level of volume, high level of volume and stimulation coming at the brain. And so it actually sheds dopamine receptors in an effort to control the amount of volume it's getting in stimulation. And so and that controls it to some extent. But if we take away the stimulation, if somebody gets clean and sober or stops acting out sexually, that stimulation has dropped to such a low level that it doesn't even register. And that's when that depressive state kicks in. There's one other thing I want to mention because people don't know. Methamphetamine, specifically, that drug con contributes to this because it's neurotoxic. Unlike cocaine, which will sit, block the dopamine receptor, a lot of dopamine's floating around that nerve, a synapse, people feel good, it rolls off the receptor. In 15 minutes, it's all the highs over. With methamphetamine, it sits in that receptor for eight or nine or 10 hours, and it's neurotoxic which means it eats up that receptor and actually destroys the receptor. So with a chronic meth use, people are actually creating this kind of functional brain injury that does take time to recover, but it takes several years for those neural pathways to rewire. Wow. I think that's so important to know because, I mean, here you have somebody who may be doing combining meth and sex, and to get in recovery, they might go into this state of anhedonia and have to live in that depressive state as their brain heals. That's tough. It's very tough. And I think, you know, my job as a therapist treating this is to really kind of set expectations. And I found the best strategy for that is to explain to my clients what's happening in their brain, that there's this healing process 
But it's been, the way people react to that is they discover they felt such shame about the frequent relapses that occur with meth. But there's a reason for that. It's their brains are highly triggered and their relapse potential is increased because they don't have the impulse control. They don't have the affective or the emotional regulation. And there's a lot of stuff going on that's specifically due to the destruction that meth causes. Right. And so I think it's really helpful for clients to know that. And what I'm thinking, you can tell me if I'm correct or not, it's when you combine that high from the drug and you combine the high from the pleasure from sex and you put those together, it's almost, could I say exponential? It like creates a super high. Is that what's going on in the brain? And Absolutely. I think it's a very fair way to put it. It just, it's kind of resets this level of stimulation, including the stimulation required to even register to a really, really high unnatural and really unsustainable level, right? That where do you go with that? You can, people get into more taboo behavior or more high risk sex or, you know, taking more and more chances until they get in trouble, either with the law or with medically, you know, and with meth and amphetamines, you can have a stroke or different kinds of cardiac incidents. So it gets really dangerous for people. And that kind of goes to that tolerance, right? As the brain is not making dopamine is slowing it down because you keep adding these artificial parts to it or artificial chemicals to do it, you've got to keep ramping it up and you're going to get riskier and riskier and and the consequences are probably going to be greater and greater and greater. Right. And, you know, oftentimes, and with dopamine, because it affects desire so much, it really heightens this. People just want more and more and more. Oftentimes that craving is stronger than their body can take. I mean, literally people will have a heart attack or or a stroke before they are able to quell that desire for more. It's a really dangerous cycle. So it's like just pushing and pushing and pushing and they're so out of control. Right. So when they come to you, I imagine they're probably in pretty dire straits. Yeah. Oftentimes people find their way either with some legal involvement or they've got some really serious medical issue where the doctor said, you can never do that again or you're going to die. And that's kind of gets people's attention. Wow. So it takes that level of intervention to sometimes get people to stop when they're doing this. Right. And I think too, we see a profile of people who are basically kind of intensity seekers anyway. You know, so I think there there are people that are kind of wired to, you know, people that jump out of airplanes or rappel down cliffs or, you know, that kind of thing. That's just, right. they get that, they like that stimulation anyway. And so this kind of feeds right into that. And so it's really hard, I think, especially for that kind of personality type to kind of take a step back and pull themselves back, but they do and they have to. So how does recovery for someone who is dealing with chem sex addiction look? How is that different from, I guess, a standard recovery? Right. So we have to really take both sides of that, the the chemical side and the sex side. Obviously, we go for abstinence, right? I know there's a lot of social, I've had a lot of clients come to me who would like to be that social meth user. And I think once they cross a line, it's really just impossible. Right. So we have an abstinence model. Also, a lot of guys say, well, I never had a problem with beer. Why can't I have a beer with my friends? You know, I'll give up the meth. And of course, that just disinhibits their urge to not use meth. So we really ask people to be abstinent across the board, even nicotine, by the way, which keeps the brain kind of in that addictive kind of idle mode. But combining that with some of the recovery plans that you see in some of the sex addiction programs with the boundary plan, you know, the inner boundary, middle and outer boundary, right. and really combining those two things into one kind of tailored program for people. And so they have to be pretty strict to allow their brain to heal, to give their brain time to heal. Right. And it's frustrating. This is where some of my sex therapy work comes in because I've had clients come to me, you know, with, who are clean 
off the drugs for six, nine months, 12 months, and not have any sexual desire returning. And of course, one of our goals is to really integrate healthy sexuality back into one's life. Right. And what I found is that although people aren't using the drugs when they're having sex or masturbating, they're using kind of the old chemsex fantasies in their brain. So they're thinking about that meth scene in order to have an orgasm, often out of frustration because they can't otherwise, right? Their brain is still at that level. So, but that can really prolong the recovery because they're keeping that meth fantasy and pathway alive and not letting their brain kind of really reboot. So it's those kind of pitfalls that I think people need some help with to be aware of. Right. To be able to see like if you're doing that with your brain, that's going to keep that system active. Exactly. And we know from arousal templates, which is kind of the map that we have of who we find attractive and appealing, once those meth fantasies or the chemsex fantasies go in there, they can't really be removed. The best we can do is just kind of not keep them active. And so one of my jobs is to help people rediscover things that are sexually interesting and arousing that have nothing to do with their chemsex fantasies, right? Things that are new. And sometimes that's going back. I often ask clients, what was sexually appealing to you before you ever picked up drugs? You know, they go back and really pick up some of that earlier stuff or because users of chemsex are so in their heads. It's such a head trip with fantasies. I really encourage people to get into some of the physical sensations of sex or breathing techniques, anything to get them into their body and out of their heads can really sort of speed up that process. And give me a time frame for that, because that sounds very intense. I mean, it sounds like a really lot of conscious work to shift someone's thinking, to shift how you feel, to pay attention to different things. What's the time frame for someone who's struggling with this? Yeah, I mean, it's quite highly individual, but what we do at Seeking Integrity is ask people to have a 90-day abstinence policy from sex and masturbation to really give the brain time to reboot and to not indulge those fantasies. And so again, people, you know, addicts, speaking as one myself, you know, we get very technical, well, including, so we talk about the fantasies, including not just the behaviors. So 90 days, and then really, if it starts to progress after that, I think at six months, people can really be starting to have some interest that's, I would call healthy, you know, and not connected to the old super stimulation it is a rocky road because one of the things with meth particularly, it has such a huge amount of dopamine release that the triggers are very powerful. And there's a lot of visual triggering, which means people can see something and get a drug craving. So, you know, that's why I'm very careful not to have, if I do a blog post or a training, for example, with clients, I'll never show a picture of drugs or a syringe or anything like that, because just seeing it can really set off craving. So you have to kind of undo all those different triggers and cravings they've learned over the months. And that takes time. Yeah. But I found that peer support, and especially if we can have peers that are a little bit further along the road. So we don't have a group of all beginners, but we have people that are a little bit down the road is really valuable because if they hear it from a peer, I think it hears much more weight than if they hear it from me. And so that mix is important. I think that's so important. I found that as well. When they hear other people have gone through it and are saying, hey, look, it is better over here. It's really hard work. It sometimes sucks. It's sometimes miserable, but it's better over here. Keep going, keep trying, keep working at it. You can get there. Right, exactly. And that message of hope. And the chemsex, particularly methamphetamine, there's such a kind of folklore out there about, well, no one ever really gets clean. You know, you're doomed. Right. And, and that's just not true. So I think I'm a little bit of a cheerleader too and trying to help people realize, yeah, recovery is possible, totally possible. 
And but it just it, when they're in that kind of depressed state where nothing seems pleasurable, it's harder to believe sometimes. It's so hard to see it. You got to look at those other people to remind you that, oh, it is better over there. I got to see that person. Maybe I can get there and hold on to that to dear life as you work through the really difficult stages of getting your brain back. Right. And being patient. I think the other thing is just, you know, there's a lot of shame that has to be dealt with. And sometimes it's shame existed before if there's internalized homophobia or something. But right. Yeah. But there's always a lot of shame about the behaviors, you know, the, what they've done to their loved ones or people or, you know, the betrayal and the yeah. trauma they've caused other people. And I think, so th- there's a lot of therapeutic work on that side to really help people have some compassion for themselves and other people. And, you know, really the steps are a great guide for that uh, just in terms of helping people work through some of those issues. Wow. This is uh, such great information, David. I appreciate you coming on. If anybody's out there, they're listening to this podcast and maybe they're struggling or they have a loved one who's struggling, what message would you want to give them? I would say there's help available there. It's out there. It's harder to find sometimes than maybe a a standard drug addiction or sex addiction, but it's a specialty and I just seek out the people that know what they're doing. I have a lot of clients who've had some bad experiences because people didn't recognize some of the unique aspects of this. Right. And it is unique. And it's so important to be able to understand those nuances when we're treating our clients and being able to help them in a particular way to get them the right help. So if people do want more information, how can they find you? Sure. So my email is david at seekingintegrity.com. And they can learn more about the work I do at www.seekingintegrity.com. We have a residential program for chemsex, sex and porn addiction in Los Angeles. And I also want to point out, we have another website called sexandrelationshiphealing.com, which has right. numerous podcasts and free webinars. And they can I'm on there live on Wednesdays. Dr. Rob Weiss, my colleague, is on live Mondays. And a bunch of other people on all kinds of different topics. So I'd encourage people to check out all the offerings there. Yeah, that is an incredibly great resource. So I will link all that in the show notes as well. So anybody can find it. They can just go to theaddictedmind.com and look for this episode and be able to find all the links there as well. David, once again, thank you for coming on to the Addicted Mind podcast. Been a pleasure. really has. Thanks so much. All right, everyone. Thank you for listening to the Addicted Mind podcast. You can find all the show notes at theaddictedmind.com forward slash 86. If you're enjoying the Addicted Mind podcast, please rate and review us in iTunes or share the podcast with a friend. Also, think about joining our Facebook group and go to Facebook and type in the Addicted Mind podcast, click join and continue the conversation there. And don't forget, if you would like to share your message of hope, please go to the website and click on the tab on the side and share 90 seconds of audio of your message of hope to anyone out there who's struggling and let them know that recovery is possible, healing is possible, change is possible. I'd love to have your voices on the Addicted Mind podcast as well. So if that's a fit for you, please try that out. All right, everybody. I hope that you have a wonderful day and I will talk to you on the next episode.
It's easy to blame ourselves for our struggles with alcohol. We see people around us being able to control their drinking without any consequences, yet no matter what we try, we can't seem to figure it out for ourselves. My name is Jillian Teets, and I am the host of the Sober Powered Podcast, where I use my biochemistry background to explain the latest research in addiction and help you understand both why you drink the way you do and how to develop the skills and mindset you need to find freedom from alcohol. I discuss topics like why we think about our drinking drinking 24-7, why we have no off switch, and why we crave alcohol. If you're struggling with your drinking or you know someone who is, then I hope that you will check out the Sober Powered Podcast. New episodes every Friday. See you there.